0: Hey everyone, Isaac here. I just wanted to give you a quick heads up that we are skipping our normal podcast today in order to publish what you're about to hear, which is a little Valentine's Day special episode. We're gonna do our best to get today's newsletter into podcast format maybe later this week, no promises, but I figured you guys might like a little change up for once if you're interested in today's topic that was in the newsletter It is about the Twitter hearings, and you can go find that on our website, readtangle.com, or in your inbox if you're a newsletter subscriber. Otherwise, I hope you enjoy this very special edition for podcast listeners only. Have a good Valentine's Day. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Tangle Podcast. That new music you hear, that's the sweet, tender sound of our Valentine's Day podcast introduction, because on today's episode, we're doing something a little different. We are sitting down with a first-year Temple Law student, a former actor and director, the main character in one of the most popular Tangle pieces ever published, a New York lifer now stuck in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, The Love of My Life. My wife, Phoebe Blake-Paget. Phoebe, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for, for having me. Are you nervous? Yeah, a little bit.
0: More or less nervous than performing on stage in front of people? Oh,
1: uh, I think more. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, well, don't worry about it. I mean, everything you say will live on the internet forever. And uh, yeah, <laughs> no pressure. I mean, that's my life every single day. So... You're stepping into my world a little bit now. I People don't know this, or maybe they do, but they actually hear your voice every single day yeah. on the Tangle podcast.
1: From executive producer Isaac
0: Saul. That's right. I think probably less than five Tangle listeners know that, that Phoebe is the female voice on the Tangle introduction. Do you remember that that guy got pissed off about that? I
1: sure do. Yeah.
0: Phoebe and I spent, this was in quarantine, we launched the Tangle podcast during covid we had this really beautiful, cute time recording the introduction together.
1: Wait, sorry. Just to, to, to set the stage, I requested it. <laughs> I said, let me, let me record this because...
0: I had to make the introduction. Everybody loves our introduction. I get compliments on the music. We're not using it today, which is ironic because we swapped in some sweet Valentine's Day music. Everybody loves the Tangle intro And we had such a good time recording it. And then this guy wrote me an email and was like, you're it's like, I find it basically gross that you're like reinforcing the patriarchy by having a woman's voice introducing you on your podcast. And we had just thought we had this really beautiful, fun, cute thing where we did the introduction together. And then the first day the podcast came out, somebody wrote in and basically told me I was an asshole for... Having your voice on there, so
1: he made like a pretty specific. He was like the, using this female voice to introduce a male producer is like having girls in bikinis selling hamburgers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I was like both offended and also like, hey, now <laughs> does that mean I have a hot voice?
0: It was uh, it was really weird. I I I am very my attitude with readers. My rule is always that I I give everybody one email of like. I don't care how unhinged your reach out is. It doesn't matter how angry you are. I will do my best to respond in a very nice, kind way. And that guy, he he tested my patience. I sent him kind of a scathing email back and said, you know, you're basically a lunatic. And this that's is- not
1: true. You did not say that. That's that's not true.
0: I didn't say I didn't call him a no, lunatic. You
1: were but. like Iris. No. <laughs>
0: I said <laughs> you didn't say that at all. Actually, <laughs> what did you think?
1: It? <laughs> you were very respectful. You were like, "I totally understand where you're coming from, but this was this is a thing that I did with my wife. She, I think, he even said she has a background in theater or something, and so this was something that we did for fun during a horrible time <laughs> in
0: history." So okay, yeah, all right. That's a nice. That's a pretty good look into our the dynamic of our relationship on Valentine's days you be correcting me and calling me out for a story that I try to make sound a little bit better. Okay, so first of all, this is your Valentine's Day present. I hope that's okay.
1: That's great. Yeah.
0: Are you happy with that?: yeah. I've given you some pretty terrible presents. I think we'll, sure we'll talk have. about that a little bit on. Oh, this. I, we'll get it. We'll get into that. I've got some I'm going to give you some give you some space to air your grievances. Weirdly enough, this, even though this is kind of technically work for me, this is sort of an odd occurrence for us these days. We have an hour sitting across from each other or whatever this is going to be, just the chat. You've been quite busy uh, in your first year of law school, which was well-documented, or the beginning of it was well-documented in a Tangle newsletter that people love. That was probably the most positive feedback I've ever gotten on a newsletter. I've got a few questions jotted down about that, about where your life is these days, uh we have established zero ground rules going into this just so that people know this is like i just pulled phoebe away from studying um i just wrapped up a day's work it's monday night i guess maybe a good place to start is um how are you liking philadelphia so far compared to new york city honest answers only
1: i do like philadelphia i do i do like it but i will say like I really really miss New York. And I think that being said, I think Philly is the best place that I could do law school. I mean, our quality of life and just the base level of stress in Philly is so different that I can't imagine doing law school in New York, even however much I miss it. I I feel like I would have it would have been really really bad for me. I mean, maybe it would have been fine, but I think it would have there would have been a lot of different obstacles that I don't have here because the city is just um like a small child's playground here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what do you miss what do you miss about New York City?
1: Well, I mean, I think I think honestly you put this in tangle, but I think one of the biggest things for me is that I moved to the city at 18 and so like much of my independent adult life was in New York and there was a lot of growing up and a lot of becoming an individual and a lot of be- coming into myself. And I think that I was really worried that that was like geographically bound where it's like, oh, I have all of this freedom and all of these relationships. My, my, my whole family is there. My, my middle brother is in California, but for the most part, my family is all either in the city or within 30 minutes of the city. And like all of my friends are there and I had a very strong community there and a lot of history there. And I'm a big stoop kid. I don't leave. I never leave. (laughs) And just moving two hours away was a real shock to my system.
0: Yeah. There was a time I remember in the application process when you were looking at schools where you were like, oh, maybe I'll apply to UNC or Austin and maybe we'll go to Boston or we could, I'm going to send an application to some schools in Southern California. I was like, (laughs) <laughs> we're we're going to be in New York City or Philadelphia, basically. Uh, I even crossed Washington, D.C. off the list. I think you got in the G-Dub, right? Yeah. And I was like, if, even for me, I didn't want to live in D.C. at all. I mean, I think for a number of reasons, weirdly enough, I was just like the distance from that world I think is good for my writing. And I also just find D.C. – to be a great place to visit, but I'm not sure I'd want to live there really.
1: I have recently become interested in DC. I think mainly because I'm in law school and you can't kind of avoid that. And also I've watched a lot of legal soap opera now. And uh, <laughs> and I have a completely romanticized vision of what it would look like to live in DC. And so part of me is like, I'm Olivia Pope and I'm on West Wing and I would thrive there. I think there's part of me that was like, I'll be a really fancy lawyer once I move to D.C. And that is grounded in nothing other than Sunshine of Land television
0: shows. You got really into the West Wing for a little while. Oh, big time. Big time. You know people hate the West Wing like passionately. What? Yeah. It's a real thing, especially in in the political world, like politically engaged people. Oh, yeah. Because they're like, this is just a fraud. Right. It's just like a total. I mean, I'm not in it for. Of course. Yeah. 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 No. I'm not in it for that. But it's just a funny thing. Like, the. It's a very. I think it's a very sort of dramatized, liberal, like, our institutions are incredible perspective on DC, where like the joke is like, you know, Veep is actually closer to the real thing or a house of cards Mm -hmm. than the West Wing is. But I have to admit, I also got really into West Wing for a little bit. I watched a couple- Yeah, I know. I was like totally not expecting to, and then I watched a couple seasons, and uh, there's something about it. There's something there.
1: Well, I think like also, this is my theory. I have this theory that like whatever space that you're operating in, it's really nice to have a trash TV show. Not that West Wing is trash, but like a TV show that is in that world that kind of like- dramatizes all of the things that you think and feel about. And I think like watching the West Wing, I was like, this is what it's gonna be. I'm gonna be a lawyer who is, you know, right hand man to the president. And every other day there's gonna be chaos and people sleeping with each other and burning things down. And I think it's like, it's this nice little thing of like, this isn't close enough to my reality where I feel seen in some moments and far enough away where it's like.
0: Let's talk a little bit about law school. Not every day you get to sit down with somebody in their first year. You went from stage theater, Mm -hmm. acting and directing to getting your undergrad in psych. I'm curious, I guess first, like transferable skills. What have you found going from the world you're in? I can't think of really, on surface level, two worlds that are more drastically different than theater and law school, but I'd be curious to hear you talk about kind of what that transition has been like.
1: So I also, before law school, had that same idea, and it it was a pretty big concern for me because I was thinking that what law schools would look at a person with a theater background and think that that was a, a benefit. But I think more and more as I talk to people in the industry and I talk to more lawyers and I talk to more uh, just people in the law they tend to feel that it's actually a huge strength that I have this theater background. And I'm not sure if that's, like, I know that I'm interested in litigation. I want to be potentially, like, a trial lawyer. And I think that there's something about that, that having had experience speaking in front of people and knowing how to kind of carry a narrative is really important. But, yeah, it was really scary initially because I, I wasn't sure that there was a through line there. Um, but I think what I knew after being an actor was that I was really good at connecting with people. And I also, I felt like I had honed really good skills on how to tell a story in, a, in, effective, in an effective and in a powerful and persuasive way. And I think as I go further into the law and further into what kind of law I want to be in, there's a lot of emphasis on, can you be persuasive in your arguments? It's really geeky, but the law is really, like, it's, there's a lot of room for creativity. And I think that, like, having had a creative, you know, kind of, like, stereotypically creative background, my brain is ready for that, of thinking creatively and thinking in narrative form and all of that.
0: Yeah, it's very easy for me to imagine you being in a courtroom, putting on a show. (laughs) That might
1: be a little bit (laughs) more about our relationship. I just,
0: uh, I think that you are, with commanding a room is definitely a strong suit of yours. There's so many people who are probably brilliant scholars or legal scholars who struggle to present and especially like given an interest in the trial aspect of it. I like to think of you, you know, lighting up a courtroom and screaming your honor or something. (laughs) I don't know why that really fires me up. So class lineup right now, what are you taking?
1: Constitutional law, international law. Um, criminal law, legal research and writing, and
0: property. It's a good lineup. Constitutional law is probably most relevant to my world. What's w- here? Those ranked most to least interesting to you currently?
1: Okay, it's a little bit of a cop out, but I do like all of my classes. My most interesting and challenging class is definitely constitutional law. I'm most surprised that I like property.
0: Hmm, property law. Very strange. Tell us something interesting about property law.
1: It's all fake. I mean, I, that's not true. Sorry to any property lawyers there. But it, it's one of those spaces where so much of property is like, we only have property laws because we need property laws. We only know what property is because we need it to be in relationship to the law and how we understand ownership and transfer and power and all of these things. And I think while that's kind of True in a lot of other spaces of the law, it's really a clear moment where we've created legal names for things so we know how to deal with them. So we know how to protect them, how to transfer them, how to value them um, all through whether we identify it as property or
0: not and whose property or not. So what constitutes something being my property? How do I take ownership over something? That's something I'd like to know. Like your water bottle is on the table. What happens if I take it from you and say it's mine now? Does that work? That's
1: actually like how we started our class was the professor took a textbook (laughs) off of a a student's desk and said, so is this my textbook now? And everyone was like, no, of course not. And he's like, right, but why? And no one knew. I mean, you can say the obvious, like I paid for it. And so like there was an exchange between the person who owned, who produced this, the manufacturer or whatever. And I paid money, there's an exchange. And so I bought the right from that person. You can make that argument. But then the other argument is like, You have all these like adverse possession rules, which is normally just land, but it's like if you use something for long enough and you extend over at this kind of like ownership power and you use it like an owner would, this is more for land, but then it could be yours too, depending on where you are. Like if you go and live, this is not, I should preface all of this. (laughs) None of this is legal. None of this is. Is, is legal help. Advice. This, is, this is no, no advice from an old fee. Dearest,
0: you're in your second semester. I'm in my so. second
1: semester, and I have learned that I, that is something that I need to now do, is anytime I talk about the law, I say, this is not legal advice. Do not sue me for malpractice. I do not know anything. Right. So
0: Sweet. So with that caveat out of the way, <laughs> now give us some sweet legal advice. Okay,
1: again, not legal advice. This is my, my lifestyle we're talking about. So we were recently talking about adverse Possession of land, and so there are all these cases where it's like if you say there's like two chunks of land, and you go and you think, oh, this this section is my chunk of land, and so I treat it like a like a proper like a property owner of this kind of land would be, or, or how they would treat this kind of land, and I do it for a series of years, like I do it for ten years, then you have a legal right over it, and in it's, it's a more complicated, but.
0: You mean like, hold on, like if there was a cornfield and it didn't belong to me and I went and camped on the cornfield with a tractor and tended to all the corn and harvested it and watered it and seeded it and did that for like five years, then I could be like, this is my cornfield now.
1: Maybe if you did it for like 15 years, 20 years, and you also could prove that nobody else was there and you didn't have permission, that it wasn't like the owner was like, yeah, yeah, that's fine. But if it was like you thought it was an abandoned field and you were there for 15 years and you were cultivating the land and all of that, it's, you know, you could make the claim that it's, (laughs) that it's your land. And I am probably butchering this and some people are listening to this being like, this girl's an idiot. But that's all to say, what gets really interesting is that the concepts behind those kind of laws that we have are about these other kind of broader social public policy things where it's like, at the time that these laws were created, we were really like, we want people to build on land. We want people to develop wild, unowned, abandoned land. And so, a lot of these laws come from things that are really not the way that we live right now, right? There isn't unowned, abandoned, wild land that no one has claim to, that people can go and stake on and and take over. So it's it's really interesting to see like a lot of those laws were reflective of how we were trying to transfer power and how we were trying to establish power and how we were trying to uh, or what what behaviors we were trying to encourage and incentivize
0: in people i mean i love that that's just the kind of i won't say legal advice because we're not allowed to say that it's not legal advice. that's just the kind of uh <laughs> legal <laughs> that's the kind of legal theory <laughs> yeah. that i like knowing about like hey if sure. i ever want to steal somebody's cornfield i could just go that's take care not of it for it. 10 years What's the one – isn't there a – there's another crazy property story about a guy's, like, DNA or body? Oh, yeah. What's that one? I like that one.
1: Yeah, so this was a conversation which which thinks – well, I think the one that people know of is the Henrietta Lacks story or her, her DNA was used for – again, I'm not – I'm butchering this a little bit, but used the DNA or something in her cells to – to experiment on to create a cure or some sort of treatment process for... uh, Now I'm blanking, I'm not sure if it was a cancer. Um, But similarly, there's another case like this where the conversation is, are cells that are removed from a patient's body after, like, a medical treatment, are they still your property? And so, like, in this case, there was um, a patient who went in who had a certain kind of cancer, had part of his spleen removed, and there was something very specific, again, I'm butchering this, about, like, the ways that his cells populated or something, there was something that was being created in excess in his body. And so the researchers used his, cel- his cells to develop a cell line that was then patented as this like cell line to treat cancer, which was then valued at something crazy like $3 billion. And so the, the patient, the original patient, tried to stake a claim that the that those were his cells and they were – he had ownership and they were a property of his. And so he should be able to kind of like sue for partial stake in the
0: patent. I love that. <laughs> I mean that that to me we, – we've covered a few Supreme Court cases in Tangle and I find them so fascinating because all the good this cases – This wasn't a Supreme Court case. I know. I know. I'm just saying it reminds me of something that would be fought to the Supreme Court because it's like – the answer, like you said, there's so much creativity there. A lot of the times I read about these Supreme Court cases, especially the really divisive ones. And so many people believe that there's just this black and white answer. And then the more you read, the more complex it gets. And I always come out in these newsletters just being like, ah, it's like, it's, I'm very torn. I feel this way. I feel that way. I can see the arguments on both sides because that's often just how I feel. It's never really simple. Do you know what the actual ruling was in that case? So the,
1: the, yeah, the ruling was that he did not have a property, right? Essentially that once the cells are removed from your body, they're not, you cannot prove that you have like a property interest in them or an ownership interest in them. But a lot of that was kind of based on this idea of so what he was suing under is conversion, which essentially is like a form of trespass to property. And conversion is strict liability, so it doesn't matter. Like the, the concern was that if you say, "Yes this is, yes, this is my property, yes, I have a property or like a property right over these things." It could be then pushed down the line to the researchers who don't know where they're getting these cells from, who are then terrified to do research. That, are, that is like huge medical advancements that we need because they're concerned about legal ramifications. So as much as there was like, it was a pretty tenuous legal claim, it was obviously really impacted by these social concerns of like, if we criminalize this, if we make this illegal, not criminalized, but if we make it illegal, if we have legal like, ramifications or protections for these, for these cells, then it could really, really hinder important
0: medical research. See, that's one of these, it's a perfect example of a case where I want the outcome that happened. Like that argument that we need this stuff for medical research and that it's better if the law does this totally resonates with me. And I think if I had to pick one for the good of society, that's the one I would pick. But the idea that somebody's cells don't belong to them once they've been removed from their body seems totally unethical and wrong to me also at the same time like i i sympathize so strongly with that position of being somebody who would you know willingly especially unwittingly have their dna or whatever used for this research and other people profit off of it and all these things and not getting a cut of it That doesn't seem right to me either.
1: Well, I will say like the way that regardless of whether or not he had an actual property right, there would be still the concern of he wouldn't necessarily have a right to the patent or any of those proceeds. So had they even established that there was a right, like that he had a property right or an ownership over those cells, it wouldn't necessarily have meant, and so I deserve a cut of this patent because the patent is different. But yeah, I mean, uh, it was a lot of what we talked about in that class was like, both the majority and the dissent were kind of grappling with this idea that they were both very uncomfortable with like a body part market, essentially, where it's like, if we say cells are property, then we're kind of commodifying them. But interestingly, the, the, the dissent said like, if we don't give people property rights over their body, then their bodies can be exploited for commercial and economic gain. So there was this, they were both kind of wrestling with these, with the similar concept of like, something about this is sticky, something about this feels not right, that there's some moral tackiness to this. And it was just, it's really interesting to watch the ways that that breaks across the line where it's like, and therefore we need to provide property rights for sales or, and therefore we absolutely should not provide those rights. You know, it's like, they're both grappling with the same feeling. Which is not always the case, but with this one, it kind of was.
0: God, this makes me want to go to law school. It's the best. <laughs> it's the best. You it's like really,
1: it? I, I love it, yeah.
0: That's really nice. You took a big risk. You, you swung on something really big, and you actually really love it. Yeah. You went from being a stage theater director to going to law school, and it turned out maybe it was a good, good call. Uh, yeah, I think it was the best call. Aside from...
1: Marrying you? Is that your? No. <laughs> no. What kind of response, is
0: that? <laughs> aside from marrying me? But
1: it was the best call. This oh, is no, a oh, cute oh, oh, moment. Oh,
0: oh, oh! I thought you were saying that. I thought you were fishing. You love it, aside from no. I was saying. I was going to say, aside from the fact that it's incredibly hard and you're drowning in yes. schoolwork and that too. You don't really sleep. You just study all the time. Correct.
1: But I think like that's kind of part of the thing. Like I think that's what's interesting for me. Like I am kind of coming to. Terms or just owning for the first time that like working really hard is something that gives me a lot of value. Like I feel really settled and confident and strong when I'm doing really difficult things. And so I think while yeah, that's kind of the downside of law school, it's also a huge upside for me. Cause I think I've really enjoyed being challenged and like being really challenged. I mean, sometimes it's you take it too far and you don't sleep, and the law is a nightmare, and sometimes it's beautiful.
0: It's nice to hear you say that about yourself. I think that's something I recognized about you pretty early on that you sort of thirst for that. Something I find very attractive, to be frank. I like, I mean, I like that. I don't want somebody, you know, who's uninterested in that kind of stuff. But I also can see you throw yourself into challenges in a way that, you know, then they grind you down too. And that's thats the other side of it. I mean, I, from my perspective where I'm sitting, I've been like holy shit law school looks so hard like I thought I mean I still I have days where like I the volume of just reading or writing or whatever I do with Tangle feels totally insurmountable and then I've been watching what you're doing and it looks harder to me which is you know it's just like it's an unbelievable challenge that you and all your friends your new law school friends are all grinding through together. i wanted to say that this i think weirdly enough has been the hardest podcast interview i've ever had to prepare for because i had to think of like questions and things that i haven't asked you about you're my wife so it's like you know it's hard to think about stuff we haven't really talked about before questions that might be new But one of the ones that I think kind of came out to me that I realized I haven't really asked before that I was interested in was how you feel about this being my job, my career, that I'm, you know, doing Tangle and this thing and writing about politics. I mean, weirdly enough, it just occurred to me I've never asked you that.
1: Yeah. I think I'll start by just saying I'm incredibly impressed by you. Like, I think that you know, this is my episode, but like, <laughs> I, think, I am like, I'm really impressed by you. I'm really, I, you know, there was a period of our relationship where you were working, you know, I mean, 15 hour, 16 hour days when you were working at a different, you were doing a, you had a second job, you were also doing Tangle and like that blew me away. You know, it, like your work ethic was really, really inspiring to me and something that I love about you. But I think what's hard is that, you know, it's hard in two ways. I think I worry about you because you're necessarily incredibly tuned into the world. And I think just the way that news happens now with its, you can always find news. And for the most part, you can always find something that's pretty horrific. That worries me about this being your job. And I think it's something that we've talked a lot about of how you draw your lines and how you draw boundaries between, right, what time are you off Twitter and closing the laptop? And those things are really, you know, it's like easy for me to say, like, don't open your phone or don't open Twitter, but it's like, that's your job. You know, that's how you are, you know, so supporting our family right now. And then like how, you know, like that's, it's a really hard ask, but for your own person, I think that those things are really strong. And that's one of the hardest parts about it is that I just know that it's incredibly, it's just really taxing. And I think you've done a really good job at finding your boundaries and your levels. But I think, I mean, by nature, it's a lot. It's a lot and it's really hard. And I think that you kind of have to be taking in a lot of information and news. And and I think sometimes what that means is that you get a little clinical about things necessarily. But I think that's the other concern is like, there's a little bit of like having to have distance. And I think it's like, you know, if you see something horrific every day, it it doesn't hit the same. I mean, you, fe- you feel the same, but you necessarily have to take steps back from
0: it. Yeah. It's undeniable that it's, that part of it is taxing. I think I definitely downplay it, to myself at least, like the, my voice. <laughs> I wish we were on video so people could see how you were, the look you were giving me right now. Yeah, I mean, I just... They're just, I feel so blessed to have the occupation that I have mm-hmm. and the job that I have. And I love the work so much that it's hard for me to frame it that way or think about it that way. But I definitely notice, I mean, I think it came up when we were talking about like the Tyree Nichols thing, where it was like, I watched the video and then it's like, it's it. there's very little room for like the emotional part of it. And then it's just immediately going into this kind of like analytical, how are we going to cover this? What's like, you know, it all gets processed through this tangle lens. And that part does worry me a little bit. Like I, cause I'm like, I know that there's, there's something there that's happening. That's not totally in the conscious part of it. I also think like I've developed a pretty good, I, I think, I think like a healthy sort of like sense of humor levity, just about like, the world and how dysfunctional some parts about our country are. Though I know that that can also be a defense mechanism. So it's it's a hard line to to walk. I think I, I get much less worked up these days about legislative stuff or like Congress acting out or whatever. I think the things that worry me is like yeah, it's the stories like the Tyree Nichols, the police violence, the war in Ukraine. I mean that is really tough all the war stuff the the stuff in syria you know like this earthquake in turkey it's like that kind of stuff kind of crushes me so
1: (laughs) see but that's not that's not you're not supposed to laugh (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know like yeah and i think that's like like i remember when everything broke in ukraine and we were walking around the city and i think you even wrote about this but like You were so in that world that it was almost like you were expecting Brooklyn to get like aerated and like you were noticeably just like, it was like, like trauma by proxy. It was just like, you were so enmeshed in the information and so terrified and worried and involved and so tied in that it was like, you were I mean I won't, it's not it wasn't like you were there but you were so like so necessarily in tune with that information and it was really scary to watch. Yeah,
0: I mean that that particular story because the images that came out of Ukraine were so unlike I mean we we've seen again we've seen that with some of the more recent conflicts in the Middle East like Syria and Iraq but to watch the invasion begin and not be the country doing it. (laughs) So like to have our reporters and our press covering it in a really aggressive way where all these videos were coming out of like these planes flying over suburban Ukraine and stuff. I mean, that part of it definitely shook me up um, and was really, yeah, was, was tough to deal with, especially, you know, having some friends and family connected to the region who had lived there and knowing they could be there. And, yeah. Well, that's a very real answer you gave about how the job <laughs> makes you feel.
1: And then I will just say, like, I I worry about you. And then I also, like, people are nasty. And, like, I remember, you know, it's like I am a very <laughs> defensive of my loved ones. And one of the hard – like, I can't go on Twitter because – there are a couple of times when I went on Twitter and someone was saying something about you, like just being nasty and having an attitude about it. And I was just like, I'm going to lose my mind. Like I'm going to lose my mind. And that is another thing where it's like, you're really good at compartmentalizing people's critiques of you. And it makes me like, it, I, like I can't handle it. Like I feel f- feel filled with rage. And, and it's hard because it's like sometimes you and I disagree about something political and I may be more politically in line with this person who's coming at you, but like that's also a, a tricky spot for me to be in because I'm like, yeah, I, I agree, but there's don't talk to him. <laughs> don't talk to him ever. Don't ever talk to him like that. And don't ever talk to him ever again. You know, it's like people really feel free to come at you in a way. I think because they don't really expect that you actually are hearing anything that they're saying. And that's really hard. Where I'm like, it's just tricky. You're in a really tricky spot. And I think the work that you're doing means that you make yourself open for a lot of criticism because you're willing to acknowledge the validity on two sides of of a really complex partisan topic.
0: Yeah. I, it's interesting. I mean, that's a good segue to kind of the, <laughs> the next part of this. Obviously, I wrote a bunch of stuff down and, and things I wanted to touch on, but I did think you know, it's Valentine's Day. Give, it's. Well, we're not going to get cute quite yet, but okay. it is Valentine's <laughs> Day. It is, you know, Tangle is obviously a platform that I think in my mind is very much about bridging a partisan divide, finding some common ground for sure. I think more than anything, it's just about exposing people to different views. I mean, I don't really care whether anybody changes their mind or not. I was sort of thinking about like, what do you think the issue is that we disagree on the most strongly? And maybe we could talk it out a little bit. Oh, I don't know.
1: I'm like, ner- I'm nervous. I think you and I, I don't know. I'm trying to think like, uh, we had a long talk about transgender people and the concept are not really, not so much th- like, trans issues, but the concept of what it is to be a woman or not. It was actually like one of, I really enjoyed having this conversation with you because I think that there's a lot of arguments around trans identity or, or like what it means to be a woman. And a lot of people ground those things in biology, in reproductive systems. And for me, I think that that none of those things in my understanding of myself as a woman none of those things make me a woman. Like it, it's not my ovaries. It's not my breasts. It's nothing. It's like, it's not my hair or any of those things. It's, it's the things that I know about me that, that feel like that identity. And like, I am a cis woman and that is like something that I'm very blessed to have that kind of like that cohesive feeling between biology and, and I just I think that there are so many places where we as a society embrace the idea that identity is individual, that like identity and things that you believe in are are for yourself to decide. And I just think it's kind of it's such a rigid space to decide that being a woman or being a man or being non-binary, like that any of those things are boxes that are decided by, by anybody else other than the person individually. Because I don't think anyone gets to decide what being a woman means to me. And I think, like, yeah, there are things that we've, as a society, decided that means I'm a woman, but that doesn't, that doesn't, that's not what resonates in me about it. And, like, that's a much more personal question that I think, like, we have spaces that we allow for that. We allow, like, I think what we talked about is, like, we allow people's perceptions and relationships with God to be individual. We allow that relationship and the idea of God and the understanding of that relationship to be intimate and decided between the person and their higher power. I'm sure that's going to get whatever backlash, but it's like, that's to say that we have that framework in other places. We don't allow the nuance that we have and the creativity that we have in these places in our life to, to come into the conversation of gender or gender identity or fluidity.
0: Yeah, I think that's really beautifully and and well said. I mean, I it's hard to disagree with anything in there. Not 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 like I'm looking for anything to disagree with. I mean, I only say that because I was trying to flesh out maybe an <laughs> argument, but then you just said a bunch of stuff that I don't really feel in in disagreement about. I mean, the I think because I sort of have a I would say more spiritual or religious background than you. I. I I thought that argument when you made it, I do remember that conversation we had and it really did expand kind of my thinking about it. But I thought that was like a really good analogy and a good point of inquiry, which was like, you know, I was mostly playing devil's advocate, I think. I don't remember exactly how the conversation came up, but when you made that point, it was sort of like not like who cares how these people are are, you know, making these decisions about their identity or whatever, but also but but even more like why is this the one space that we try and box people in or constrain it in a way that we really don't in other spaces? Which I think is a really profound, actually, and and like pretty original idea. I mean, I read a lot about this stuff. I, I know that you might not think that. I, I'm sure there's tons of scholars in the field and things like that who have addressed the argument that way, but I don't hear it spoken about that much, at least that way, at least in like the political discourse. I think the political arena is probably where like the most rudimentary and bombastic and kind of like just assholey arguments about trans issues happen i think like a lot of the really interesting conflict and arguments about it happen more in like uh you know the academic setting or the medical setting which i i find really interesting that's what, so i before before i i i asked this question and then i wrote down what i thought well, I was going to ask, gonna what, do you,
1: what do you think our, that we most disagree on is?
0: I would say probably gun rights and then maybe like speech issues. Interesting.
1: I mean, have we ever, I, that's, I'm surprised that you say because I feel like we haven't really talked about that. Where do we disagree?
0: Well, like generally, I think the tension, the nature of our relationship is that your politics are much more left than mine on most issues. I'm much more I mean maybe I'm not. My my mindset is like I'm a pretty radical free speech activist believer. Like I I think like, you know, there's obvious lines where like speech is against the law. That's it's you know, I'm not I don't I'm not like an idiot. I don't think there are people out there who are like free speech no matter what and they think that that means that you can just like say and do whatever you want whenever you want, which isn't actually how free speech works. We did a really had a a really great podcast, actually, with Grace Lavery, who happened to be a trans woman, who had a really fantastic perspective about how these issues impact trans people in the public square. That's one of my favorite Tangle interviews I ever did. But I would say like, I'm just much more tolerant of people's expressing their right to free speech and saying things that I maybe find offensive or boring. I think like, I don't know. What do you think about I mean,
1: I, well, here we go. I mean, this is, I think my feeling about that is I think I, in general, have a little bit of this idea that like for the sake of moments of progress and equality, that it's sometimes necessary to like take the L. Like when we were talking about I don't know why, but with trans athletes where it's like, oh, like these, all these arguments about these trans athletes coming in in different divisions and what if they're losing and all of that. And my thought is like, who cares? <laughs> like I'm not an athlete. And so maybe I don't understand that, but I do think that there's something for the sake of like, that I am for a level of like loss of individual privilege for the sake of these things that have been historically oppressed, right? Not these things, but, like, people, identities. I'm much more willing to say, like, for the sake of bettering and making the world more or making our country more equitable, I'm for, like, sometimes you take the L. Take the L. Like, sometimes you just, you can't have it all. And, like, I remember this being part of, like, the the law school application process is, like, the nastiness online Of the idea that, like, oh, I'm not getting into this law school because I'm not this, this, and the third. Like, I'm not. I don't hit these like identity boxes, and so.
0: Uh, To be to be clear, just because I know what you're talking about, but I think listeners might not totally understand is when you were going through the law school application process, you were in a lot of like law school subreddits where where applicants were who were getting rejected from schools were going online and being like, oh, I didn't get in because I'm not like a black queer or whatever. You know, they were just like very, basically a lot of like white men being pissed off about not getting into schools.
1: And liberal white men, like liberal white men and liberal white women and liberal cis white women who who all felt s- slighted in these spaces. And like, and you know, it's like, whatever. I don't want to be like on my high horse, about it, but I'm like- if I if I don't get the opportunity because the opportunity is going to someone who has historically not been offered that opportunity, then like that's the win. Like that's the win. Is that like it's it may not be me, it may not be me walking through those doors, but like that is that's the good thing. Like that's the thing that I stand for. And so sometimes it's about not getting what you want or not getting what you would hope for yourself in every moment and understanding that by not being able to have it all, then then that's the opportunity for others to have that slice of the pie. And I think there's such an achievement mindset for people and, like, you deserve to have what you work for. But if you don't get it, it's it, you're, it's not – I don't know. That, like, that. there's grace and, like, and humility and, like, all of these things in not getting what you want and not getting what you want being, like, of service to something that you care about.
0: It's funny. I, this is th- – I think this argument is actually has nothing to do with the speech issue stuff. That, yeah, I don't I don't have anything I don't know what <laughs> I don't I don't know how we got here totally, but now that you're saying this, I actually think this is probably another area where we have some interesting disagreement. I mean, I've written about affirmative action in mm-hmm. Tangle. So my views on this are like very public and transparent. But I saw obviously you showed me like a lot of these it was very juicy, dramatic to watch students find out whether they're getting into these schools and how they're reacting online. And, and we spent some time in these message boards and there was some really ugly stuff in there. Like I, you know, I'm, in no way am I like those people seem like good people. <laughs> they did not. And, and I think they're representative of like a view in the country that is like really fed up with any kind of you know whatever you want to call it affirmative action race based whatever uh, w- which i think there are some people who have good honest disagreements with programs like that i mean the affirmative action case for instance that's in front of the supreme court right now which i you're if you don't already you'll certainly know more about it than i do soon is obviously you know it's like that's sort of a specific place where you can talk about actual disagreements but it's, you know, the case that they're making is kind of interesting where it's like groups of Asian students are basically being discriminated against because of affirmative action policies, because they're creating race-based quotas. And I actually really do disagree with that strongly. Like like the the concept that you can't just pretend, you know, the Jim Crow era and slavery and all these things didn't have an impact on edu- education that we're still experiencing now, Obviously, I mean, that is something I've written is, you know, it's like the famous Lyndon Johnson quote, like, I can't remember exactly what it is. But it's like, you know, you can't, you can't like unshackle someone and say, okay, you're like free to run the race now. And that's it. It's like, and we're all we're even we're square, like, no, you have to, you have to concede that we've done this, like systemic harm to people. And, you know, 60, 70 years ago, there were racial minorities in our country who weren't allowed into college. So you can't just open college applications up to them and then say like the the program's fair, the process is now fair. I do think that there's like where it gets tricky is when you you don't have like a, a tangible goal that you're trying to achieve of like equity or equality around a program like that. There needs to be something that we're aiming for that is like when we get here, then we can, you know, we don't have to say like racism doesn't exist anymore, but we can concede that like, you know, that there's a, the, the gap between like a poor white person and a poor black person in America is closing right now in terms of like opportunity that they have. I mean, that's just the reality of it. And you know uh, uh at this moment, maybe not right now today, but I think at some point before affirmative action programs end, there will probably be a time when like you know certain demographics, whatever it is, black or Hispanic students are gonna have advantages over uh white students who have like same upbringing or whatever, and that's the whole point of affirmative action is to like repay some of that, but there needs to be, in my mind, there needs to be like a clear stated end goal. Otherwise, it's just the sort of like perpetuation of we're dividing everybody by, by, by racial lines. And what inevitably happens, which we're just, we're seeing now, is that it it creates a lot more racial tension in the country, which really scares me. I mean, that to me is like, The scariest part. Do you really
1: think that those, like, that that's creating more? Like, I I just disagree with. Definitely. I don't.
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I think that there's tons of people out there who have certain racial animosity and biases who will look for any excuse to justify feeling certain ways about, you know, certain races. I also think that they're, you know, justified or not, they're going to be. More and more generations of students or whatever, kids who view themselves as being really different from people who are of other races than them. And that worries me. Like that,
1: That is not historically different. That is not a shift in society.
0: No, I, I agree. It's not. That's the problem. Like The problem that we're trying to remedy is that for most of our history, we have divided ourselves by race and class. And we're saying we want to live in like the quote unquote post racial society.
1: I don't know if that we're saying that we do
0: though. I okay then like maybe that's the core of the disagreement. But like certainly my perspective is like I want to live in a society where there's enough equality, there's enough equity that we don't have to worry about dividing up people by racial lines. We don't have to worry about.
1: Right. Okay, yes, of course. Yes, right. of course. Yeah. So that yes, that, that that's what I'm saying. I I just yeah. That I that I agree with. I thought you meant that there would be no need to kind of understand uh, I don't know. Like division between cultures and races is going to like I think that that I, like that's so ingrained right now and
0: like I don't I don't know. I think it's ingrained, but I think it's also really reinforced and I think it's I think it's one of the objections that a lot of people like A lot of people who are fighting, you know, like the DEI movements and stuff like that. I think it's one of their objections to it that really resonates with me is that there's like, I I, I genuinely feel really torn about like an all black safe space on a college campus. Like, I think I do. I, I, again, I wish people could see the look you're giving me, not because I don't think that those, not because I don't think that that's necessary now. Or, th- or that it's, it, it's not justified now. I think there's a perfectly obvious justification for it. I just think that long term.
1: But we're not dealing with the long term. We're not dealing with the long term. So I, like, I understand you, like, like these ideas of the post-racial society and all of this. And like, that's great in the hypothetical, but that is not the reality that we live in. That, that sounds like you're fighting a battle on a hypothetical ground. Where it's like, yeah, sure, eventually, hopefully, those things will weigh negatively in the opposite balance because we've made these strides so that things feel more equitable. But I don't believe that we're there. And so I think like trying to combat those spaces preemptively, being like, one day these will isolate people who, where we're not drawing lines racially, but we're drawing lines in class or we're drawing lines, uh, whatever, in gender or all of these things. Sure, but that's not what we're at. And so I understand potentially the hesitancy there, but I tend to think that that is, a hy- that is an argument in the hypothetical, where it's like, that's not the reality that we live in. We don't live in a post-racial society. We don't live in a society where everyone has been made to be able to access the things that everyone should be able to access. Like, there is no baseline platform for everybody. And so, like, yeah, I hear the argument, but it is it does not feel to be found it in the in our day-to-day life.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I, that part I agree with you on and I think that that's like that's ultimately why it's I'm not like we need to tear down these safe spaces or whatever for students. Like I I've never really
1: Yeah, no, you're not, but you're also like I, I like
0: Well, I I I genuinely do I when I view them, I see the symmetry of like We are, we are just drawing these lines again.
1: But, but I think you cannot take away the historical context there, but, 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 but you keep on saying, of course, but like the reality is that no matter how far in the future we are, if you're drawing spaces that are supposed to be racial safe spaces, where people who are not white can feel safe, comfortable, whatever, outside of the gaze of whiteness, like. There may always be a need for that based on our history, where it's like there may always be a need to, to offer a space of respite from the realities that have, have played into our country since its inception. Like it just it may always be that you can't take away that we that we degraded every other race except for white people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, and hundreds of years. I just don't know if you can erase that to a point where we're now living in some society where, oh, we're however many years removed. And so we don't need to offer anybody a space in which it, they can step out. I, I just don't think that that's how trauma works. Like, I don't think that that's how, that that's how like <laughs> racism works. Like it's, I, I understand the concept and the ideology, but I don't think that that
0: may ever really come into play. I think you're right that there's probably, there's something, you know, there's, Idealism and there's something maybe naive about that.
1: And I like not to play it, but like, I, like you're coming from a position as a, from a, a, a straight white cis man who is, who is also touching on these things from an academic standpoint. Right. And I think that there's something to that, too, where it's like, yes, we can have these academic conversations about things theoretically, and, but that's not, that's not the boots on the ground experience. And it may never be.
0: For sure. There, there's there's no doubt about it. It's, it's just like the, you know, I, I think I hold a lot of these things simultaneously in my head because I see our disagreement and then I hear your point and I'm like, yeah, it's a great point. I totally agree with it. You know, I don't, but it's hard for me to turn off that voice in my head. That's also like, there's something about this that feels bad or toxic or worrisome or like, And it's not, you know, the, it's really hard because it's not, you know, safe spaces on campus maybe isn't like the, the best example. I mean, the, 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 like the horror stories that like the Christopher Rufos and the people like that use are like teachers lining kids up, you know, by like least to most depressed in like a, these like third graders in classes or whatever. And there's stuff like that, that I think most people find kind of like repulsive, in some way. But I also think that to concede your point, I think there's a danger also in in that sort of like idealist perspective on it that living in the hypothetical or living in like the academic removes some emotional present day current component of it that is really important for people to hold on to because it's like, you know, regardless of what the demographic or group or whatever you know, society in our country is, whatever that demographic is in our country, these are, it's like, there's a group of people saying like, hey, this this thing we need or we want or we desire because of X, Y, and Z. And, you know, I talk a lot about leading with empathy in my politics or trying to do that, which I, you know, I think a lot of people, when I write that entangle, I always get the, oh, so you're just like a bleeding heart lib. And I'm like, no, I think, People on both sides extend empathy in their politics. They just tend to do it to people on their team. And I think like your argument there sort of scratches at my empathetic bone where it's like, it's not really about what my academic hypothetical perspective is as much as it's about like, what do these people need? What do they say they need? Or maybe even more acutely, what can you see that might be a necessary good in the present day. Yeah. I mean,
1: I think that that's like, like hearing like the, even the example of like the teachers, and it's like, yes, that, that is not productive necessarily, but that's the exception, right? Of what's happening in a lot of spaces. And for every like story that comes out like that, where it's like, oh, uh, like a misguided teacher trying to like address racism or address, address oppression has done this thing that's like kind of off, uh, like, I don't know. I don't even know the word, like not, not a great way to handle the situation. It's like, there's also all of those, the same videos of like a young black girl getting kicked off her basketball team or her volleyball team or her lacrosse team for wearing braids or getting kicked out of school for having corn roasts. Like the reality is like, yeah, we can, we can punish these, like we can worry about protecting this like eventual utopia. But but are we doing that to the detriment of the pains and the, and, and the damage that is still happening as a, 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 as a result of, like, the way that we structured our country?
0: This makes me want to start a podcast with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think you, you make your points very well, and they're all really well taken. I wish – maybe we should just start doing this every week.
1: <laughs> I like it for us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, we do – I do feel like we get into these conversations a lot you know, at dinner, over a glass of wine. I, I really, I don't know how much we disagree on trans issues. That probably wouldn't have been the first thing that I said. I think we, I think we definitely- I think it was just,
1: it made me think of that conversation where we were kind of, it, it wasn't like a disagreement about trans issues really. It was more a disagreement about like what it means t- to be a woman or be a man. And like, I think that that was where-
0: I definitely have a really basic- like red blooded straight male view of of like I don't know it's like you know i I just feel <laughs> right, like, like I, I
1: think that there's something like I don't, what i
0: don't know I don't know like uh, uh, i I mean it in like a i don't know of an an earnest way like i i don't think i think you've expanded my world a lot in terms of just like how I grew up how I was raised, how I view the world. And like my own, you know, personal instincts about all these issues of just like, you know, men are supposed to be like tough and rugged and not talk about their feelings and play sports and whatever. I mean, like the classic masculine stereotype. For most of my life, that's that's just kind of what I've been immersed in and identified with. Like diversity, equity, inclusion stuff, I feel like we argue about sometimes the affirmative action stuff's hard. I mean, that to me, it comes down to like really specific cases that I think draw out certain tensions. I really thought that you were going to say like gun rights or something. Because
1: I feel like when do we talk about gun
0: rights? I don't know, but like I feel like I like guns and sort of. I've asked you. A you few don't times, like
1: that? Like that's also. I I don't know. That feel since when?
0: I mean, I asked you if we could have a gun, and you said no.
1: Okay, I'm calling bullshit on that. That's not true. Anytime a friend of yours has come to you and said, I'm thinking of buying a gun, you're the first person to be like, absolutely not. Do you know what happens in a household with a gun? Do you know what happens to suicide rates? Do you know what happens to all these things? Like, I think that that's a little bit of a lie.
0: Well, that's, no, that's true because most of my friends who ask if they should get a gun or not, I'm like, no, dude. Oh, yeah, and you're what, the, the pillar of what? I'm not the pillar of anything. I just feel like sometimes, especially, like not in an urban setting, but I don't know if we lived in the suburbs or in West Texas. Dude,
1: what? Like, I think you're trying to be provocative because you have never, ever said any of this before.
0: I asked if we could, if I could own a firearm if we had a house in West Texas.
1: Right. Because you were talking about shooting rattlesnakes. Like, Sure. You could also just have a shovel. You could have a BB gun. But, like, that's not... Talking about buying a gun to have in the suburbs, to have in the... Like, no. I also don't even think that you believe this. <laughs> I don't think you've ever actually... I think this is...
0: I'm calling bullshit. We shot guns in Texas, and you loved it. I mean... Well, did you? I don't no, know. No, did I didn't like love it. it?
1: Like, yeah, it was maybe, really yeah. kind of upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I... I mean, yeah. I mean, we. I, I shot, like, a semi-automatic gun. And it was... Careful.
0: All right. We're over an hour, right? An hour and 15 now. I don't know what you would have guessed if I said I've got some rapid fire stuff here, some Valentine's Day rapid fire stuff. All right. How often do you read Tangle in a given week? Actually read Tangle or listen to it? Zero. Zero? Maybe zero.
1: Maybe once, once a week.
0: Wow. My feelings are actually <laughs> hurt by that. During
1: law school, yeah. I think before law school, probably an easy four. But during law school, maybe one. But I click open and I scroll down to the very bottom to keep those open rates up for you.
0: We're going to have to talk about this later. I'm
1: sorry. I, like, I'm like i a busy girl. <laughs> it's, 10, it's 10 to 15 minutes a day. Is it? It is. Is it?
0: It is. Is it? I very rarely fake those numbers. Okay.
1: Well- yeah, I wish I had 10 to 15 minutes of leisure reading.
0: All right, what's your least favorite thing about me?
1: You chew with your mouth open.
0: <laughs> yeah, I do. I'm working on that. That's a problem for me. I eat too fast, too. You
1: eat too fast. You eat like you're never going to be fed ever again. You've got some poor table manners. And one I'm of them the youngest
0: is- of two brothers. Oh,
1: my God. Me, too. I have two older brothers also.
0: Grow up. They didn't do it. They didn't do to you what my brothers did to me. They didn't steal your food. and Oh, they didn't? And you, don't, you didn't have the appetite. You never had the appetite I That's had. That's
1: a sexist thing to That's say. That's not sexist. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What are you talking
0: is. about? What's sexist about that? How do
1: you know about my appetite when I was 12? Well, what do, do you know about it? when you were it? 12,
0: but today and certainly in the, like, whatever it is. Yeah, but as a growing person morning, going
1: through puberty, well, you, you knew about my appetite?
0: You think you ate as much as me when we were both 12 years old? Who
1: knows? Maybe.
0: No way. You what definitely, you're, you eat like a bird compared to me now.
1: Are you? What world are you living in?
0: You don't think that's true? No. You have to stop me from eating your food when we're done dinner.
1: Right, but that's not f- that's that's because you don't have any understanding of your limits of your <laughs>
0: body. <laughs> okay, well, I said compared to me.
1: But that's not your actual hunger rate. Sometimes you just eat and eat. There's no hunger involved.
0: All right, favorite thing about me. Now you have to be nice. See? See what I did? Can we circle back? No. No, I'm still in a mean mindset. No, I don't care. That's the point. You have to say something nice. Why is this so hard? All the other questions are so easy.
1: <laughs> it's not hard. It's just like it, this is a podcast. There's People are going to listen to it.
0: Yeah, so? I
1: don't know. I want to say something like super gushy to strangers.
0: I'll give you a minute. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was my favorite thing about you. Yeah. You're a, like, a fantastic husband. Thank you. You make me feel very loved and cared for. And I think I wish everyone could see you're so red right now. Um, yeah, I mean – we fell in love because you were like the first person to ever make me feel safe.
0: Thanks. I love you. That's really nice. All right. What's, what's your, the favorite gift I've ever given you? Oh, gift? Yeah. Present.
1: Okay. I love my engagement ring. And then but. I- But? <laughs> well- You're you, going to say a stuffed animal? Yeah. You gave me a stuffed animal dinosaur and it, it rocks me to this day. You can't with sleep without night. him? Okay. This is a podcast. <laughs>
0: for he has them. a stuffed dinosaur she can't sleep without.
1: Isaac slips with a chimpanzee. <laughs> <laughs> Tucked underneath his arm every night, and he asks for it. He says, where's Chimpy?
0: <laughs> What's your <laughs> – what about least favorite gift I've ever given you? Oh, my. There are many. You, I'm, I'm a notoriously out-of-pocket gift Horrific, giver. horrific I've gifts. done some bad stuff over the years. One,
1: one year you gave me a cookbook that I didn't cook with with a strange butterfly inside and a pair of leather flip-flops. <laughs> <laughs> that was particularly harsh. Um that was bad. What are some other bad ones?
0: That's pretty bad. You
1: gave me that the we the you, you bought me a strange painted elephant picture that's hung <laughs> in every apartment that we've had <laughs> that you've insisted on hanging
0: up. It's not hanging up in this apartment. Sure isn't <laughs> you finally It sure isn't I bought that in uh, Thailand. Yeah, I bought that in Thailand. That was a great gift.
1: Okay. What's your favorite thing about me?
0: <laughs> My favorite thing about you? Yeah. Uh, I mean. See, it's hard. Yeah, it's it is hard. Yeah. I would say I think your empathy is the thing that I admire the most about you. Like when I think about the part of you that I am most – Impressed by and like genuinely moved by it's that you have this unbelievable capacity. I mean, I think anybody who listens to this podcast just heard it in the context of like the political discussions we have, but I think you have an unbelievable capacity to put yourself in the shoes of other people and imagine what their world is like and genuinely feel for them in a really authentic way that I don't have that like I have to practice and. Yeah. And I think that that's like really beautiful. And I also, I find it really challenging because I think you're, again, just like the conversations we just had, I think you're really good at sort of poking that empathetic bone in other people too. Like you're good at framing things like that. Like, we'll think about what it's like to be them, imagine what they're feeling right now. And that comes out, you know, most often, not in like political ways, but just in day to day stuff where, I think I'm being thoughtful and then you (laughs) make me realize that I'm not, I'm not being nearly as thoughtful as I think I'm being.
1: Right. But usually that's about like, are you being thoughtful with me?
0: Yeah, but not just with you with that. I mean, with, with the world, with people and like, and, and again, like I think it, I especially admire it because it's something that I personally try and do and personally take a little bit of pride in. And then you're just way better at it than me. I, I think my favorite thing about you is probably just how you talk, like your general, inner like the way you interact with people. Like I love being in social situations with you. Like when I go out or I'm like at a party or whatever, like go to dinner or something and you're not there, I'm always like wishing that you were there. Yeah. I just, you're, I think you're, you're really, you're very outgoing. You're a quick talker. You're a classic New York girl with like your- Jersey. Jersey girl with your well, big both. Yeah, both. But you are more a classic Jersey girl with like the hoops and the finger pointing and the long nails and like some attitude and uh I think that was like the first thing that I was really attracted to. And I think it's to this day, I think it's my favorite thing about you is that you're you've got you're tenacious. You've got you've got some fire inside, which is which it is really nice too, and it's fun to be around. Thanks. You're welcome. See? I wish they could see you now. All right, last two. Describe your ideal date. This is a cheat. It's not a cheat.
1: I mean, yeah, I shouldn't have to just because you can now you have it on record and you can just cash in on this.
0: For sure. This is a pretty cliche question, though. Describe your ideal date. I mean, this is one of the, this is the one I put like the least thought into. Mm.
1: I love a, like a bougie cocktail. Mm. Like, I think that I love pretending that I'm really fancy. And so that would mean like dressing up really nice, going to like a, like a fancy cocktail bar, sitting at the bar, having like a really beautifully made cocktail, and then going to dinner, like an early dinner and sit outside. It's warm when we're having this date. Sit outside, eat dinner, sit down slow, casually, no rushing. <laughs> You're not rushing eating. I don't ever have to talk to you and your mouth full of Millions of foods, slow meals, slow having coffee after the fact, sipping coffee.
0: That's nice. Worst date I've ever taken you on. We all know this one. This is the one I do know an answer to.
1: For my birthday, you told me you were taking me to a beautiful Italian (laughs) restaurant. You look so embarrassed. A beautiful Italian restaurant. I am wearing like a black cocktail dress, this like low neck cocktail dress, heels, makeup, hair, the whole thing. I'm like, we're going out. We're in this cab. We go to have drinks at my friend's bar beforehand. Get in the cab, we go, and we're pulling into Little Italy. And I was like, oh, this is cute. Like, we'll go to like some little Italian spot in Little Italy. We can walk around. And we pull up to a place that is essentially an olive garden. <laughs> like an off brand olive garden and isaac is trying to pretend like it's fine but it's like me in a black cocktail dress and every tourist that's ever stumbled into new york in their cargo shorts and i i am miserable and we order all this food and the food is bad it oh, is it's
0: one of the worst meals horrible ever horrible food
1: bland tasteless expensive as shit and i think i just started crying at the table <laughs> you
0: did yeah you cried right there i cried
1: yeah. I mean, there was so much hype. You're like, I'm taking you to this, this quaint little hole-in-the-wall Italian spot, and then it was an olive garden.
0: I got bamboozled by a trip advisor or something. I, I literally couldn't even tell you how I ended up doing that, but I remember walking in and thinking, i just made one of the biggest mistakes of my life. Horrific. Yeah, I'm sorry about that one. All right. Well, listen- um, <laughs> It's Valentine's this Day. Is, I just want to say, like,
1: this is an Isaac, a classic Isaac sign off. It's like, well, listen, um...
0: <laughs> it's Valentine's Day. Uh, I love you very much. I thought about, like I said, this was one of the ch- more challenging interviews I've ever had to prepare for. So I thought a lot about, like, questions, what we talk about. You know, I knew that, I know we disagree on all sorts of stuff and I figured we'd find a way to to get into that which I think we did pretty organically and then I was thinking about how do I end this podcast uh, which I wasn't totally sure what to do and then I had an idea and so I thought maybe this would be a good Valentine's Day really like turn the mush up to 10 um, so this is what I thought of <gasps> <laughs>
1: Isaac is pulling out an actual piece of paper right now. Oh, no.
0: Do you know what this is?
1: Are these our vows? (gasps) Oh, oh, no. We
0: had a COVID wedding, and there were a lot of people that we really love who weren't there. And I thought maybe it's been almost two years now since we've been married. We could revisit our vows on this Valentine's Day. I'm going to cry for sure. For the whole world. (laughs) I think you should go first. No. Yeah.
1: You go first.
0: No, because you want, you want to hear about you at the end as the close-off.
1: Okay. Sorry, excuse my wrestling.
0: You think you can get through this?
1: Uh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Isaac, so often when we look back at our story, I have said, who would have thought? As if the chances of our ending up together were truly unimaginable. But standing here today, six years after our first date, 11 years after your Facebook friend request, I think my response has changed. It seems so incredibly obvious that this is where we would be and that it would be you all along. I could never have loved someone who didn't make me laugh, who wouldn't see my small but mighty family as indispensable, or someone who would be put off by my sharp but charming attitude. (laughs) (laughs) Safety is not a particularly romantic word but you have made the world safe enough for me to take chances, to live bigger and bolder than I ever have. I used to be so proud that I could take care of myself on my own, that I didn't need anyone. But our love and your love has taught me that nothing could be better or braver than how happy I am to need you. I think back to our beginning and how carefully you solidified yourself as someone I could depend on, how you walked patiently next to me through the streets of Manhattan around bookstores and museums or how you sat across from me <sighs> how you sat across from me in restaurants or side by side in central park never pushing just gently reminding me each time I turned my head that you were still there our love wasn't made in a single glance or a kiss or a day it was a slow burn a steady methodical layering of togetherness that bonded us so gently that at first i didn't even realize but on february 12th Oh, my God. See? <laughs> but on February 12th, 2016, I did. I was upstairs at Old Broadway Synagogue, an Episcopalian celebrating Shabbat and Orthodox shul in Harlem. <laughs> and I looked over the railing at you, sitting below, and thought, that's him. The process was slow, but the moment was fast. I loved you and love you so much. Everyone knows I'm more comfortable teasing than praising you, because someone's got to ch- keep that ego in check. But today, I'm trying something new. Isaac, (laughs) I am so amazed by you. You live your life like the world is new and everything is beautiful. Your friends and family feel that to be with you is to be loved. You have built a business that is not just successful but thriving, all because you had the courage to bet on yourself. During the hardest days, I watched you drag yourself out of bed and prove to yourself that it would be worth it. I was there in our beautiful home, struck by how incredibly lucky I am to be the person a man like you depends on. And I am so proud of you. I have loved being your friend, girlfriend, and fiancé. But I am so excited and so ready to be your wife. And when we moved in together, we sat down and we wrote house rules. I looked over them recently, and while they're definitely a couple about dishes, most of them are about the kind of home we wanted to build. Rules about hosting dinners and lighting candles and brushing our teeth together every night. I wanted my vows to be like that. Promises about the life we will build. So here we go. I promise to always laugh with you even when I'm tired or angry or hungry. (laughs) I promise. I promise to speak when you need encouragement and listen when you need help. I promise to love you when it's easy and love you even harder when it's not. I promise to protect our togetherness and respect our space. I promise to celebrate you as a partner, as a writer, and as a friend. I promise to never let you wear an extra large t-shirt, cargo shorts, or puka shell necklace ever again. I promise I will all, we will always have a garden to grow flowers and herbs and peppers. And I promise that someday we will have another fish. And most of all, I promise our babies will grow up knowing exactly what soulmates look like. I love you, kid.
0: I love you. You're a really beautiful writer. You don't get enough credit for that.
1: Well, it's hard when you're married to one.
0: <sighs> all right, now I hard? wish I went first. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> Phoebe, nothing I can say here right now will fill up the cup the way it should, but I'm going to try anyway. You've taught me how to be gentler with people. You've taught me to slow down, to look around, to stop working and give myself space to be. You've taught me to have higher standards for what vacation means, for what constitutes a good dinner, for what kindness is, for what communicating your feelings looks like. You've taught me to lower my standards substantially for what qualifies as a good TV show or a full day of activities. You've given me a brilliant, unwavering group of friends I didn't realize I needed, but I did. Two more brothers to seek out debauchery and petty crimes with another mother radiating with infinite love, another father who can find the dark humor in the worst of life's moments. You've given me hope. Before I met you, before we started falling in love, I didn't actually believe people like you existed, people who really cared, people whose actions matched their words, people who live consistently by a code of ethics of what is right and wrong, just and unjust, fair and unfair, people who really were moved to tears by the smallest things, An elderly couple holding hands, a tiny ceramic bowl to hold things, a kiss on the cheek, or in the case of a few days ago, a family of groundhogs in the front yard. When I think of you, I think of empathy. You are empathy embodied, and it is the thing about you that I love most. You have the uncanny ability to access the feelings and needs of those around you, and you use that ability for good, to comfort friends, to help people who need it, to better understand your partner. I'm amazed that you can love how you love despite it all. That in the midst of four full-time lives, going to school full-time, working full-time, studying to take your LSATs full-time, that's a moment in time there, well, and planning a wedding with little or un- little or unhelpful help from your idiot fiancé full-time, you take the time to defend the people you feel need protection, to act on the causes you believe in, to FaceTime a friend for two hours so they can talk about their crappy date. So now... I'm asked to stand up here and make a vow, a promise, to a woman that seems to already understand what's in my heart better than I do. Phoebe Paget, I promise to love your heart, to cradle and encourage it, to try and hold you steady when it's overflowing and about to burst. I promise to try and chew with my mouth closed. <laughs> Real theme. <laughs> to learn to clean while I cook, to remember to turn all the lights out when I come to bed. I promise to protect you, to walk on the street side, to lock up the house, to do my best to keep the ugly, scary things in this world as far, as, as far away as I can. I promise to ask how you're doing and take off your socks when you're too tired to. I promise to accept that some nights I'll have to watch Gilmore Girls instead of the NBA. But most of all, I promise to love you. I promise to laugh at all your accents and jokes and dances. I promise to learn to say my feelings out loud. I promise to let work be interrupted for life. I promise to dance, starting tonight, for as long as we can stand. I promise to kiss your nose and ask how you're doing and surprise you with something kind like flowers or chocolate or a cold Diet Coke or a bag of Lay's potato chips. I promise to try, best I can, to love you and care for you the way you love and feel and care for the world around you. And I promise to do it for as long as I live. I love you. I love you, too. (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day. I think that's it. That's a good way to finish. See? See? We love each other. Yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. We'll be right back here tomorrow. Same time. You want to say, uh, well, I, I yeah, you used to say, have a good one. Peace.
1: See you later, skaters. <laughs>